0: I'll never forget when my daughter Natalie brought a young boy home that she said she wanted to marry. As a child, she had brought home several stray cats. And in my mind, this was similar, just much more dangerous. This boy was fresh out of college. The most significant job he'd ever had was delivering pizzas. And yet now, he was going to become the provider for my daughter and my future grandkids. He needed to be properly vetted. And so I spent the next year examining my prospective son-in-law. I left no stone unturned. I had a checklist longer than the jiffy lube. I mean, a 40-point inspection. I wasn't going to entrust the leadership and care of my daughter to just anybody, This man had to pass muster. And this is how God feels about his church. The church is the darling of heaven, the envy of the angels, the bride of Christ. And God isn't going to turn the leadership of his daughter over to just anyone. He expects pastors and church leaders to possess exemplary character. They need to pass muster. And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives to Timothy and to us a jiffy lube like inspection for church leaders, a character checklist. Verse 1 begins This is a faithful saying if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. The New Testament uses three titles for church leaders bishop, elder, and pastor. In Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Peter chapter 5, you'll find that all three titles are used interchangeably for the same person. Elder refers to the man himself, his maturity. Pastor or shepherd describes his methods. And bishop is the Greek word episkopos. Epi means over and skopos is to scope out, to see, to look closely and thus an episkopos oversees. This speaks of what a leader does, his ministry. He views the big picture. He oversees the spiritual health of the church. Three ingredients, as we learned last week, factor into the qualifications for church leaders. Gender, giftedness, and character. And as with the person who married my daughter, gender and character are the most vital of the three. In this long checklist, only apt to teach refers to giftedness. And yet, sadly, today's church stresses only giftedness, while it compromises on both gender and character. Rather than grow godly men, in the modern church, women have usurped roles that are biblically reserved for men. And men of suspect scruples are tolerated because they can attract a big crowd. Gender gets ignored and character gets shortchanged and God is appalled with our disregard for the beautiful portrait he's painting through gender roles, the picture of the church in Christ. Paul's checklist here indicates that he is targeting godly men. It's a faithful saying, he tells us, for a man to desire leadership. Hey, I believe the church's future depends on godly men stepping up. And chapter 3 outlines their required caliber. Verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. Hey, just because a pastor preaches well, he can't be a crook. He can't cuss out the umpire at the church softball game, or hide from his creditors, or cheat on his income tax, or neglect his wife and kids. He has to live in such a way that earns the respect of the people around him. Once a pastor embezzled $25,000 from the church funds. One of the elders commented, we need to go find him and get him back here so he can work off the money he owes us. I'm afraid the elder had missed the point. No, a bishop must be blameless. Now that doesn't mean sinless. It means blameless. We all slip up in sin at times, but we should repent immediately and address the damage done. The Greek word translated blameless means nothing to take hold of. No one is perfect, but there should be no glaring issue that an outsider can point to in my life and accuse me or the message that I preach. Obviously, there was much in Paul's past to incriminate him. But his past had been dealt with by the blood of Jesus, and now his life was a testimony of God's amazing grace. For a pastor, the question becomes, are there current issues in my life that will discredit the message I preach, or the Savior I serve, or the church I represent? Is my life blameless? One day, as St. Francis was walking down the street, a young boy reached out from the bushes and tugged on his coat. He pleaded, please, sir, be as good as we think you are. We need leaders who are blameless. The next qualification is the husband of one wife. And this is a debated phrase. Some take it as a ban on polygamy among elders. Having multiple wives is common among first century pagans, and it even lingers in some cultures today. Others insist here that the prohibition speaks to men who have been divorced and remarried, eliminating a divorced person from being an elder. But I don't think either interpretation really gets at the heart of what Paul is communicating. A literal translation of this would be rendered a one-woman man. See, Paul's concern isn't as much about a man's marital status as it is his attitude toward women and sexual purity. See, a man may have been married 50 years and still not be a one-woman man. If he's had women on the side, or a fascination with pornography, or he's a flirt, or his eyes just wander toward other women, his thoughts and desires are obviously not focused on one woman. Whereas a divorcee who repents of any wrongdoing in his previous marriage and actively renews his mind and is deeply devoted to the woman he's remarried, this is a fellow who qualifies as a one-woman man. Bible commentator Kenneth Wiest puts it like this, We speak of the Airedale as a one-man dog. It is his nature to become attached to only one man. Since character is emphasized by the Greek construction It's the bishop's nature to isolate and centralize his love. And this also has implications for a church leader who is single. Though he's unmarried, he still needs to be a one-woman man. I mean, it's not a good thing when Pastor Casanova starts playing the field. He's going to disrupt unity in the church. He should patiently wait on the wife that God has for him. Now, here's more on this checklist. Temperate, it means self-controlled. It's the opposite of having a temper. A temperate man is one who has his emotions in check. Sober-minded is a man who thinks clearly and keeps issues in perspective. We call him level-headed. Of good behavior, he lives an orderly life. Hospitable, the word literally means to love a stranger. An elder should be friendly to newcomers and able to teach, maybe not in front of a crowd of 5,000, but certainly in a small group of believers, and then not given to wine. Literally, he doesn't stay at the wine. Some folks believe this leaves room for a pastor to drink in moderation, But when you survey the totality of Scripture, everywhere that leadership and alcohol are in juxtaposition, it's a warning against the dangers of alcohol. This alone is enough for me to choose not to drink. As a leader, I occupy a decision-making post. I can be called on at a moment's notice. I can't afford to let booze dull my senses or cloud my mind and my brain. Leadership is all about foregoing personal liberties for the greater good. That's why the elders here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain abstain from alcohol. In addition, he says, not violent. A church leader doesn't push people around. He's no bully. He doesn't use force or manipulation to get his way. He leads people with love and with gentle persuasion. He's a peacemaker. And then not greedy for money. A pastor needs to feed the flock, not fleece the flock. He shouldn't love money. Once there was a toddler, he was playing in the den and found a quarter stuck in the shag carpet. Like toddlers do, he just took it and stuck it in his mouth, accidentally swallowed the coin. Well, the dad saw what had happened and he yelled to his wife, Quick, call the pastor. The wife replied, You mean 91? 911? He said, no, the pastor, he can get money out of anybody. (laughs) In addition, a church overseer should be gentle, not quarrelsome. It's been said a troublemaker is a guy who rocks the boat then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. An argumentative and combative personality disqualifies a man from spiritual leadership. And not... Covetous, or that is envious of other people, even of other pastors and churches and ministries. And then he says in verse 4 one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Now, this is a key. Does the elder's wife and kids respect him? See, if a pastor or an elder Can't win the respect of those who know him best, you have to question if he's living respectably. And when it comes to a pastor's kids, please remember they are kids. I sheltered my kids from unfair expectations. See, it's not whether a pastor's kids are going to rebel, they're sinners, and all sinners will rebel. It's how a pastor responds in the wake of their rebellion. And coming down too hard can be just as foolish as not coming down hard enough. A wise pastor dad knows a balance is needed. Here Paul says that a pastor's ability to manage his household is an indicator of how well he will manage the house of God. He says in verse 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house... How will he take care of the church of God? I mean, being both a pastor and a father, I'm often struck by the similarities of the two jobs. You know, both require the combination of a strong hand and a sensitive heart. Pastors and dads have to rule. We have to, at times, take charge. But we also have to love and take care. That's why I think family leadership is good training for spiritual leadership. And spiritual leadership is good training for family leadership. A pastor should be a man who's good at both. You know, it's interesting. You can neglect your wife and kids and still be a good doctor. You can neglect your wife and kids and still be a good lawyer. But you can't neglect your wife and kids and be a good pastor. For if you don't lead your family well, you can't lead the family of God. Years ago, it dawned on me that church members are fickle. And they leave the church at the drop of a hat. And yet at the end of the day when the smoke clears, I want my wife to still be my wife and I want my children to still be proud of being my children. A wise pastor prioritizes his family. And he shouldn't be a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Now, often a new believer will win a few early victories, and it goes straight to the frontal lobe. He mistakenly thinks that the power is his. He's wrong. And if the prideful novice is a leader, he can drag down his followers. And thus, before he leads, he needs time to mature. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. This is another reason he needs time. He needs; he shouldn't be rushed into leadership so that all the world knows of him is his before Christ days. No, he needs time to earn a godly reputation, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And the snare of the devil is a progression. The devil puffs us up, sets us up for failure, then knocks us off our pedestal and then buries us in condemnation. He's worked his snare many times. That's why a novice should not be thrust into leadership. The point is, the church needs seasoned men with character, not just clever characters. I'm reminded of a scene from the movie, Eight Men Out. It's about the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Eight Chicago White Sox throw the World Series. The great player, shoeless Joe Jackson, he's leaving the courthouse and he's sworn by reporters who are shouting at him, What did you do, Joe? Were you in on the fix? Suddenly, everyone goes quiet. While the voice of a little boy, maybe 10 years old, rises above the din of the crowd, he looks at his hero and he says, Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Joe says nothing, he just hangs his head and walks away in shame. Would you like to see it? Here it is. Joe, over here. Hey, what'd you Joe. say? Joe, were you in on it? What's the story? Hey, Joe, come Joe. on, over who was the big cheese? Who did all the brain work? Joe, Why'd here. you wait so long just fill it, Joe? Hard guy. Was that? Was as sweet as a hard guy. Joe! Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Hey,
1: Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff.
0: I don't ever want a little boy in our church look at me and say, say it ain't so, Pastor Sandy. Say it ain't so. Verse 8. Likewise, deacons. Once a pastor and deacon, they went deer hunting together. When they arrived at their usual spot, they found a no trespassing sign. Well, the pastor recalled that old man Jones, he had a farm just down the road. The deacon balked. He says, yeah, but Jones is a mean, ornery cuss. The pastor told him not to worry. Well, when they rolled into the yard, the deacon sat in the truck while the pastor went to get permission to hunt. When the door opened, there was Jones. Pastor, nice to see you. You're our favorite pastor. Whenever we're in town, we go to your church. What can I do for you? Well, obviously, permission to hunt was granted. But as the pastor walked away, the farmer asked him, he said, Pastor, he says, I've got a crippled old horse down by the barn that needs to be put down. But I'm rather fond of him. And I can't bring myself to pull the trigger. Will you shoot him for me? Well, as the pastor walked back to the truck, he started thinking, man, I can have a little fun with the deacon here. And so he jerked the rifle off his gun rack. He turned around and he snarled, nobody's going to talk to me like that. He aimed his gun at the horse and, blam, the horse dropped. Suddenly he heard, blam, blam. The pastor spun around and there was the deacon with smoke pouring out the barrel of his shotgun. The deacon yelled, come on, pastor. You got his horse and I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. (laughs) Man, elders and deacons make an interesting team, let me tell you. Elders look after the spiritual needs of the church, whereas deacons handle the physical needs. The Greek word translated deacon means servant. Elders are a role of authority and oversight. Deacon is a post of service. I call the deacons in our church the designated doers. In the book of Acts, the elders were chosen by Paul and the existing elders, whereas in Acts chapter 6, the deacons were chosen by fellow members of the congregation. And that's the way we do it here at Calvary Chapel. And Paul tells us that the deacons must be reverent. That is, they must be serious about the things of God. Not double-tongued, that is, loose-lipped. A gossip has no place as a deacon in the leadership of the church. Not given to much wine. Not greedy for money. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also, first be tested; then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. See, all leaders need to be proven before they 're appointed. You know the golden rule in selecting church leaders is this it 's much easier to hire than it is to fire. thus, we need to test them first and then verse eleven, likewise they 're wives, and here 's an example of how Some Bible versions can mix up interpretation with translation. The Greek text reads simply, likewise the women. But here the King James Version assumes Paul was addressing a deacon's wife. Maybe, but there is another possibility. Other New Testament passages suggest that there was a female order of deacons within the church. Romans 16 verse 1 refers to Phoebe. As a servant of the church, the word servant there is deacon. Deaconesses are sisters who serve the needs of other women in the fellowship. Often in church life, situations arise that need a feminine touch. And it's nice to have a group of deaconesses available to meet those special needs. I like what commentator J. Vernon McGee says about this verse. He believes the reason women today clamor for roles in the church that are reserved for men is because they've been denied their rightful role of deaconess. Here Paul is laying out the character of a deaconess. She must be reverent, not slanderers. And in the Greek, it literally reads, not she devils. The word devil means slanderer. I heard of a lady who had a great way of combating gossip. When told a juicy tidbit, she'd insist that she and the gossip go directly to the subject of the gossip to find out if the accusation was true. (laughs) I doubt anyone approached her twice with a maligning word. Hey, before you say anything about anybody, make it pass through three gates. Is it true? Is it needful? And is it kind? The deacons should be temperate, faithful in all things. Women representing the church should be self-controlled. Once a man said of his wife, my wife should be in Congress, she keeps bringing bills to the house. (laughs) A temperate woman controls her spending. In verse 12, Paul reverts back to the male deacons. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You know, a deacon who serves faithfully earns people's respect and gains a degree of influence. A good example of this was Stephen. In Acts 6, he's waiting on tables. But in the very next chapter, he's preaching and working miracles. Deacon is a role where a person can prove themselves. Verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. This is the theme here of 1 Timothy, how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. And speaking of the house of God, the church, he says, which is the church? of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I love that. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. I mean, where else can a person go today and find truth? Not the government, not the media, not the public universities. Rather than advocate for God, they often oppose him. No, the only place a person can go these days to find God's truth is the church of the living God. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. If the gospel is an explosion of grace and truth, then think of the church of our Lord Jesus as ground zero. Verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. You know, godliness, the things of God, are like an enchanting and mysterious woman. She has a mystique. The more you know this woman, the more you realize you can't figure her out. See, the things of God, likewise, have a mystique that draw us to them. As Pascal put it, I love God because I know Him. I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. Philosopher Mortimer Adler became a Christian at the age of 82. He explains why. I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world. But there are elements in it that can only be described as mystery. My chief reason for choosing Christianity was that the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if we can figure God out ourselves? And Paul summarizes the gospel's mystique. He begins, God was manifested in the flesh. Hey, the ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. The gospel begins with amazement and wonder and awe. Jesus was justified in the spirit. He worked miracles, but not of his own hand. His power came from God's spirit. He operated as we should by faith. He was seen by angels. Throughout his ministry, Jesus often received angelic assistance. But I think what's more amazing is that for the 30 plus years God walked this earth, every angel in the cosmos had stopped in their tracks and marveled. He was preached among the Gentiles. This was an unexpected twist. The Bible was written by Jews, for Jews, about Jews, to save Jews. And yet, almost immediately, the king of the Jews was preached among the Gentiles and believed on in the world. A man who never traveled more than 100 miles from his own hometown has become Lord and Savior in every corner of the planet. And he was received up in glory. What began so inconspicuously with peasants as parents in a backwoods village called Nazareth, in a Bethlehem stable in the womb of a young maiden, crescendoed in the clouds. The risen Lord ascended to glory. The Son of God shows up in the womb of a virgin, but he goes up to heaven from a hill outside Jerusalem, from arrival to ascension. Great is the mystery of godliness. Chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. See, so far, Paul has told Timothy to use the Bible biblically, to stand up for sound doctrine, to fight the fight of faith. A pastor should be apt to teach the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. But why all this emphasis on right doctrine? It's because the closer we get to the last days, false teaching is going to abound. And it's a shock to a new Christian to realize not every so-called Bible teacher really teaches the Bible. Some speak with lies in hypocrisy. Understand, not everything labeled spiritual is godly or biblical. Walk into the religion and spiritual section at the Barnes and Noble bookstore, and you'll find books by Billy Graham and the Dalai Lama on the same shelf. See, today's world is fascinated with all things spiritual. Paul tells Timothy there are deceiving spirits in the world and demons spewing doctrine. When Satan fell, a third of the angels joined his revolt. These angels are spiritual, they're spirits, but they're deceiving spirits who inspire false doctrine. Their goal for us is to get us to depart from the faith. And see, Satan has an advantage in this battle, for he lies shamelessly. Demonically inspired teachers just tell people what they want to hear or what they want to tell them. Unlike God, Satan has no obligation to the truth. This is why Paul says of these demonically inspired teachers having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They've lost any integrity or fidelity to the truth. Their conscience has been cauterized or desensitized. These teachers are no longer governed by sacred scripture, let alone God's Holy Spirit. They're governed by political correctness, not theological accuracy. And in the next few verses, Paul provides a rundown of what these false teachers emphasize. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. From food to sex, the false teacher forbids what God allows and calls good. Mormons don't drink coffee, but God created him coffee beans they're good. Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians, but oh, God created meat. (laughs) Steaks, sausage, and bacon. You bet he did. That's from God. Roman Catholicism denies its priests the opportunity to marry and enjoy healthy sexual intimacy, and it puts an undue pressure on their clergy. No, when God created beans and meat and sex, he said that it was all good. And he hasn't changed his mind. You please God not through abstinence from these things, but by thanking God for them and then enjoying them and using them for his glory. See, holiness isn't about what I sacrifice for God. It's about what he has sacrificed to save me. Biblical spirituality involves the work of Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit's work in my heart, not my self deprivation. You know, in Colossians, we studied a heretical doctrine known as Gnosticism. It taught strange forms of asceticism. Asceticism is the attempt to please God and grow spiritually through self denial. And yet, Paul couldn't have disagreed more. We become more spiritual not by denying ourselves God given pleasures but by abiding in Jesus. A quick survey of history, and you'll discover how often these verses have been overlooked. Christians have tried to grow spiritually through all kinds of fleshly techniques. In the 4th century AD, monasticism was a popular means of spirituality. Monks retired to monasteries. Some lived out in the forest and ate only herbs and roots and wore loincloths made out of thorns. Mmm. Try that one. There was a monk named Simeon Stylites who set the standard for extremism. He lived atop a column for 37 years and bowed to God 1,244 times a day. Simeon thought the more he suffered, the more spiritual it made him. And he was wrong. And even today, there are Christians who have mistaken self-deprivation as the key to spiritual maturity. The more I do without, the more spiritual I'll become. That's not true. It's the old, I don't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or run who women would do kind of attitude. But just keeping your nose clean doesn't alter your heart. Trust me, a person can live in a cave and eat nothing but communion wafers and still be full of lust and pride and hate. What makes a person holy isn't what we do without, it's what we take in. I grow in God by receiving His nature and His pardon and His peace and His love and His joy and His power. Jesus said it in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Real righteousness is a matter of the heart. Christianity is not about me cleaning up my act, it's me trusting God to make me clean. Religion conforms us from the outside in, whereas the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out. See, in contrast to self-dep- self-deprivation, verse 4 encourages to enjoy what God created. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. This is amazing to me. Do you realize what this means? Once you have thanked God for it, Eating that bowl of chocolate ice cream can be an act of worship. (laughs) It's true. I've heard it put, the world says, I live to pleasure as I die to God. The aesthetic says, I live to God as I die to pleasure. But the Christian says, I live to pleasure as I live to God. Christians are free to enjoy the pleasures that God has created. Savor that good cup of coffee in the morning. That juicy slice of bacon. A glass of wine in moderation. Sexual intimacy with your spouse. As long as you don't get intoxicated or cause your brother to stumble in some way, have at it. And when it does make sense to abstain, as in the example of an elder and alcohol... Realize abstinence alone doesn't make us more pleasing to God. Paul says God gave us meat and drink to enjoy in the proper context. Abstinence doesn't make you more righteous, not in God's eyes. God authored life's pleasures, and we're free to participate in them if doing so enhances our gratitude toward Him and our dedication to Him. And then in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Notice this, people need Bible instruction. Christianity is a teaching enterprise. This is why we do what we do from Sunday to Sunday. A good minister teaches good doctrine. But reject, profane, and old wives' fables. In other words, superstitions. Stick to the word, not superstitions. You know, amazingly, even in our high-tech society, did you know that 20 million Americans carry a rabbit's foot or some other good luck charm in their pocket? Though it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit. No, Paul encourages Timothy not to trust his destiny to silly superstitions, but to godliness. Exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. I mean, physical exercise, it's good. It can firm up your thighs. But through spiritual exercise, prayer and Bible study and service, you can firm up your faith, which profits a lot. Realize health clubs work off a business model where they sell far more memberships than their facility can accommodate. Why? Because they know that a few weeks after people sign up, they stop coming. Exercise is hard work. And godly exercise is still exercise. You know, it's been said you don't stop exercising because you grow old. You grow old because you stop exercising. And if your Christian life has grown old and lost its vigor, there's a good probability that you've stopped exercising yourself spiritually. And here's why spiritual exercise is so vital. For having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Listen, I'm going to live for eternity. I have the promise of this life, but the life to come. And thus, I would rather have a sculpted, in-shaped spirit and a bulging faith that'll last for eternity than a well-toned corpse. In verse 10, Paul sums it up. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, these things command and teach. And then he tells Timothy in verse 12, Let no one despise your youth. At this time, Timothy was probably in his mid-twenties. And this was an issue for the young man. See, Jewish priests didn't start their ministry until they were 30. And to many folks, Timothy was just a kid. (laughs) I no longer have this problem. But when I was younger, I did run into some resistance. Some people wouldn't come to Calvary Chapel because they wanted an older pastor. And I'll never forget Mrs. Aliman. She was this little Cuban lady in the church, wonderful lady. On my 30th birthday, she came forward. She was so excited. She said, Pastor, Pastor, I'm so glad you've turned 30. Now we no longer have a young pastor. (laughs) I didn't know whether to cry or smile. (laughs) Paul tells Timothy not to be intimidated by those who frown at his age. Spiritual maturity has very little to do with natural age. You can be young and possess great spiritual depth, or you can be old and a spiritual baby. What matters is time spent with God and in His Word. Now Paul says to Timothy that he needs to forget what people are thinking and get on with leading those who want to be led. For he tells him, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. All spiritual leaders should be first and foremost an example to other believers in attitude and in action. He says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Timothy needs to read and study his Bible. For the old adage is true, readers are leaders. And then verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. God had given Timothy a spiritual gift when the elders had laid hands on him, praying and prophesying over him. But as in the parable of the talents, Jesus said that the man who had the one talent took it and buried it and hid it, and it was taken away from him as a result. With spiritual gifts, Paul is reminding Timothy, it's use them or lose them. And then verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourselves entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. And notice, Paul expects Timothy to progress. See, it's a sin when a pastor stops trying to get better at his craft. Imparting God's word is a vital task that deserves my best effort, and I need to be growing and getting better from year to year. Well, finally, verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You know, pastor juggles a lot of balls. Hospital visits, counseling sessions, church administration, staff, et cetera, et cetera. But the one ball a pastor can't afford to drop is the teaching of sound doctrine. The salvation of souls, And the spiritual growth of the church depends on his faithful parsing of the scriptures. The Bible needs to be every pastor's pressing priority. And why not yours as well? For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by God's word. Let's all build our lives on the word of God.